All right. We did it. We 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 finally got to our our podcast saying, on critical you're theater. We're here, Doctor Draper. We've we've made yeah, it. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, it takes time to process these things. Um, mm. And we, we mentioned in a couple of podcasts just how opaque this writing is anyway. So sometimes you could read it five times. Um, GPS but, wasn't working. We took the long yeah. route. No highways, Actually, no highways. I think the problem is it's our day jobs that get in the way. And it's creating <laughs> oh, yeah. an alienation for us to do to our true calling, which is to do this podcast. But <laughs> um, We're learning from our material too, it, it appears. It is. It is. It oh. is. Yes. So, um, well... Uh, this is uh, the podcast we've been sort of pushing toward, right, is to understand critical theory. Um, I recently did some lecturing on this in class and unpacked some of these ideas and had a number of 20-somethings say, that's interesting. That's a lot like how people in my generation think now, uh, mm. which I was fascinated that they they picked that up, mm. uh, that it has permeated the culture in that way. And right. I think right. in some ways, too, you know, the period we study... Uh, in our dissertations and stuff was more Anglo-American enlightenment. Right. Uh, and, and the way I sort of see it is that really the continental enlightenment uh, really started to take root in America, particularly in the 1960s. No, that's right. No, um, I think that's right. And I think, I think what we failed to realize, and there's a couple of books I've written, I've written now that made a point about this, that there's a German enlightenment and that they say continental. And that, that just doesn't agree with the French underpinnings of a lot of modernism. It certainly doesn't agree with British or American underpinnings. It's not entire alien. Kant, Kant tried to pull it all together. But that what we've been exploring, which I think is really helpful, is that there's this Ger this German line of thinking yes. that's that, that's changing the terms on Europeans. You can't go, you can't trace this back and go, oh, I see this is part of, you know, uh, Newton and Locke and the English Enlightenment. No, it's not. The terms have really changed. They, they really have. I mean, and I actually had a student say. How come all these names in my notes are German? Right. Uh, and I said, well, you know, and uh, I said, even going back to, um, you know, if you have a student who's studying Bible, <clears throat> you know, going back to higher criticism, where does that go? It's it's this German enlightenment. Right. Right. Um, and it's German philosophy and this continental German continental philosophy right. <clears throat> really does land. Uh, in in the United States in the late 1960s. Right. Uh, as an uh, as a people looking for an alternative, right? Um, well, and, it lands technically, Doctor Draper. It lands yeah. in the nineteen thirties in uh, Colombia, oh, yeah. right? Yes. But it doesn't right. land culturally mainstream until the sixties. I think. Yeah, that's where yeah, that's where the masses are absorbing it. You know, <clears> it would, right. um, I, I heard a scholar recently said a lot of people were reading Mercus. Now, what percentage of them could understand what they were reading? <laughs> another thing, but. They, they still felt number. they needed to read Sartre and Marcuse and stuff like that. And uh, so, so Dr. Yeah. Draper, let me ask you, what is yeah. the Frankfurt School? Because what we, is we, the Frankfurt School? We, well, we've been saying critical theory and that's, yeah. like, we're still trying to unpack some of that, but then it always comes back to this thing we call the Frankfurt School. Yeah. What is the Frankfurt School? Yeah. So the Frankfurt School is a, a research institute uh, in the University of Frankfurt uh, in uh, the 1930s, uh, late 20s. Uh, and it's an institute for social research, hmm. uh, in many ways, looking for new models, new methods. Um, uh, and um, really comes, I think it comes out of the sort of the pessimism, the, 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 the fear, the uh, distraught feeling in Germany after the First World War. Right. 
they they have to it, it, it you and I have talked about military history and and we've talked about this before uh you know, the losing army always has to do some self-reflection right you right. know the, the winning army not always you know they can just put on their white hats and say god was on our side and we won right. but the losing side always has to do some deep self-reflection and, and and i think this frankfurt school is part of the german self-reflection what happened to germany uh you know and also in the middle of that why did the soviets get a, re a socialist revolution and we didn't um right and it's 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 really a, a it's a method uh, of research that is, I think it's putting everything under the microscope. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's using uh, Marxism uh, and, and, and a number of scholars have commented that oftentimes um, <clears throat> people uh, who, who come out of this movement, Herkheimer and Adorno, um, they are using critical, but what they really mean is Marxist. And um, right, right. And, and, yeah, but they can't say it. They can't right. say it, right? Because but I think they did, right? I mean, I think Frankfurt's pretty upfront about. And I think I think one of them. I don't know. I, you know, there's all these. There's a little bit of soup of names that are hard to pronounce. Horkheimer, yes, uh, Adorno, you know, and Adorno, yes. Lowenthal, like the like. But but when Horkheimer takes over, I think there's this. There is this idea that it's the first intentionally like. And this is a funny part of this, Doctor Mark, that I don't know we've talked much about, but you know, you you see the. The Marxism being, let's say, in the Wobblies, right? The IWW in the Communist International Commune, um, which you know Lenin helps run the International Commune. Um, but but this is the first time it goes into a university and takes over the academy, and that's an yeah. odd, that's an odd fit. Norm, we don't think of it odd now because Marxism is you know part and parcel of every university. Yep. But then it was an odd fit, partly because Marxists were considered people that went out like Lenin. They were revolutionaries. They were. They were activists changing things. And then these people stopped going out to change things. And then they set back into the university to research. With an endowment. With an endowment. Yeah, right. Now yeah. that that like, so they're they're now there's a, there is some major change here that this isn't this isn't trying to this isn't just an activity to drive history. This is now an opportunity to analyze and assess what's going on. Um, and that does represent a major shift. And of course, that's where Marxism settles over the next century, right? And one of the impact of the Frankfurt School and what become the you know the um, so Institute for Social Research at Columbia is that now it becomes the sort of predominant right method for 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 research, either scientific, social science, even now in philosophy, literature, humanities. It's now taken over as the number one method. How do you understand anything? You have to look at the social impact and the social power and the you know and the sort of Freudian Marxian thing that now becomes the whole heartbeat of the entire American Academy or let's say Western Academy. Yeah. Yeah, which would not have been the case in America prior to the 1960s. He would right, have really right. seen that, you know, maybe avant-garde places like Greenwich Village in New York City and uh, right. the Beatniks and maybe out in uh, San Diego with Marcuse. But now this language is really part of the pop, the Vox Popula. Right. Um, and many of them don't haven't, you know, I, I think there's a certain truth to many of them have not read Marcuse and understood them, uh, right. but they've absorbed these ideas as sort of a priori right uh, and and they just sort of operate out of them right and uh <clears throat> and so you're right about that it, it it certainly has become the dominant paradigm running through the academies through right. just our culture and society today and and i see this term um often western marxism yeah 
and, and and I think this is really what we're dealing with. It's it's the it's the tools of Marx that he uses to analyze the economics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, this is going to turn on culture, right? And evaluate culture and what what is generating oppression. And I think too, it's also the Frankfurt School is also when they they sit back, they're asking the question maybe, well, why didn't we get our Soviet revolution, you know, our communist yeah, revolution, yeah. our socialist revolution, and Russia did. And I think sitting back in the academy for them is the space to try to sort out what happened and, yeah. and how do we move forward. And I think where they come down on is that uh, uh, Hegel and Marx's uh, sort of automatic march of history mm-hmm. is not automatic. Right, uh, right. You have to manufacture it. Right. Uh, you have to create it. And I think that's what we kind of even saw with Lenin. Uh, he manufactured it in a way. And right. and then and they start to realize, OK, what, what's the how do you manufacture it? Uh, right. But again, I don't think they are ever economic Marxists. I, right. I never now that's, get that. No, that's a great point. I think that this is an important point for us going forward is to understand that critical theory. You know, we say cultural Marxism. You're right. That's a term we tend to throw around. Yeah. For me, that's probably one of the better terms. I, I think we need to talk about why the word critical matters. Um, because that's an important part of this. But the idea of cultural Marxism, if we go back to what Marx said and how the transition now happens with the with the Frankfurt School, is that, you know, for Marx, it was the economic engine, right? So it was property ownership and the bourgeoisie economically considered those that own property or own the means of production. That then changes and alters the actual internal state of the person, right? You 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 become a yes. bourgeois. This is what this is what it makes you. And this whole concept that you you use the idea that the Tupperware lid is put down. And now all of the complexity of human society can be decided by what's in the Tupperware pot. So that's right. What's in there? There's money, property values. This is how Marx sees it, right? There's there's money, there's capital, there's property ownership, there's wages, there's labor. These are all the only things in there. But I think what changes now, to your point, is the, the terms, the soup contents change, right? It's not now just economics. Now it's cultural things such as language, such as architecture, such as, you know, um, gender, Music, art, any, or anything. And and, yeah. it, and this is more intrusive. This is this is where, you know, we, we talk about uh, like ideas like um, uh, hegemony um, that, that come out of Italy, you know, in the, in the, in the interwar period. But the idea that Im- impact on the individual now happens at every angle, it's so dense, it's so interactive that you can't see it, but it's it's deciding everything. And I think this idea of Hegel, one thing we didn't do a ton with, but I think we pulled it out of Marx a little, is the idea that the value of any one thing is defined by its relationship to everything else it touches. Yes. Yes. And so therefore, if you were to say, I would say, well, lying is bad, a critical theorist would say, the reason you're saying that is because you'd have to check all who's, who told you that when you were young, where'd you get this idea? Um, What's your biological makeup, right? I'm going to search all the soup contents around the floating carrot here, and yeah. that's going to define everything about it. So now what you have to do is you have to start deconstructing, as you know, would eventually be argued, deconstructing all yeah. the values I have and noting that they only have them because all I am entirely defined and impacted by this cultural soup, not by mere economics. And that that takes Marxism and it drives it, boy, it really makes it a thorough view of humanity. Well, it becomes it becomes sort of an evaluation of everything. Right. Right. I mean, it's why I mean, people don't like the term. There's some people don't like the term cultural Marxism. I don't know what other term to use. I don't either. I think it's right. Because it it, it really attempts to use skills like this to critically evaluate everything Um, and, and particularly social structures. 
and and the way people believe and the way people think and and what created that. And again, where Marx sort of had a silver bullet of economics, they have a, a much broader understanding. And I think right. I've thought about this. They don't use this term. Um, but in some ways, I think they start to maybe maybe Taylor kind of moves into this space. They're looking for the things that really create your social imaginary, right? Yeah, or yeah. you know, they're, they're really looking for those things. Well, what are they? And um, but they're beginning with a they're beginning with a a view of what it means to be human uh, that is very much opposed to whatever's sitting there because they they begin with people are being oppressed. Right. Um, that that's sort of a default perspective. Well, okay. This is something you and I, you guys, we we've hinted around. I don't think we've actually landed on this yet, but I think it's an important part of this. That's a great point, Mark, because what there is this idea that things about you you think are true are really synthetic, right? They're really created by this culture around you that have made you. So what's it mean to be human? And what do you get down to? And this is where Darwin and Freud, I think, become such important players in this. Because if you look at let's let's take a bird and put them in a certain environment and you've got predators and trees you can land on, right? The bird's going to act according to all that. But at the base of all of that, untouched by all that are two instincts, survival and sex. Yeah. Right. And Freud's idea that sex is the most basic urge in the human identity and Darwin's that survival is, I think these two components then they would say become the authentic character. And so what you, in a sense, what you're going to do is you're going to deconstruct, be critical of every value you have, except for the ones that come from those two urges, because those two urges are, are are actually who you are. And I think I think Marcuse will get this into finally with his Eros and Civilization argument, that ultimately it's those things which are the most natural. And this and Freud made this point. We remember we talked about this in World War One. For some reason, civilized society and absolute standards and morality and religion, all of that takes those two urges and metastasizes them into something so awful, evil and oppression, World War One, violence, destruction, so, so what's the interesting flip to me about critical theory is that you take the things we used to think were good, we want to head towards those things, you know, compliance and hard work and morality, and it actually says those things take the normal urges and makes them evil. Yeah. And so what we have to do is we've got to get rid of all of these structures that have turned us from good people into mass murders in World War I, yeah. and once we're free to feel the instinctual pleasure of sexual desire and feel the instinctual desire of survival, then all of these things that humanity has turned evil war will now somehow cease. I think they hold on to this Marxian sort of utopic thing. So I think I think that's I think, and this is a hard part for sometimes Christians to get their minds around. Is it turns out in the critical theory mind, the very things that we would hold up as good are the very causes of everything that's evil, and the things that Christians typically are very suspicious of sexual desire and the sort of violence of self-survival, you know, giving up your life so you might find it. Um, those two those two things are need to be constrained here, need to be given full license. Authenticity, right? There's concepts of authenticity yeah. and self-identity. You've got to you've got to let these urges run and then we won't have war. So that, you know, it's a really odd thing to say if you let people pursue sexual desire and survival at their own way somehow we won't end up in war and conflict. Well, and it's, 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 they've, they've boxed themselves, no pun intended, but they've boxed themselves <laughs> into the container in this way. Mm -hmm. uh, once there isn't anything transcendent, what can you cling to as something you can rely on? Right. And, and, and obviously you can't rely on the morality people have created because no. it's all built on social structures. That's right. The exactly. only truly true, uh, litmus test you have is yourself. That's right. 
And, and so you and your feelings and, and desires and, and things, what are those without the restraints? That's truly who you are because all this other stuff is all built on control, social structures, um, various forms of oppression. And so you're forced to sort of look within and, and, and actually sort of an ontological sense of this. The only way you can even know being is by looking inside. That's right. Uh, and so, and I think for, for Christians engaging this, we got to begin with one, that transcendent material then. Right. No, that, that, I think that's, I think that's well said. I think that's what, this is, this is such an important linchpin for us to understand that, you know, yeah. we say, how is the individual, you know, how is this radical individual, whatever I feel, if I feel I'm a boy or I feel I'm a girl, how is that? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But if you go back to your metaphor and we say, you're in the top of where I've been and everything is fluid and everything is natural and changing this idea of becoming. And so we don't yeah. have any essence, but the one thing that never changes is your urge, your, yeah. your, you know, your instinctual urge for these things. And so you've got to, you've got to literally unpack all of these false synthetic identities you've been given morally right, Christian being objective. That's the worst thing. You're objective. There's no such thing as objective. Exactly. You realize every word you say has been caused by somebody else. So you almost got this picture in your head of this, uh, this reality you live in is sort of in the, is the tree above the ground which is being infected by everything. And so you can't trust it. But the thing underneath the nut, that instinctual desire for sexuality and pleasure, self-satisfaction become natural and therefore real and authentic. Yep. And everything else is contaminated by this interplay of someone else's ideas and concepts and things you saw on TV and things you were told when you were a kid. It's just sort of weird behaviorism for everything about you, except for this genetic reality that you were born with an urge for sexual pleasure and satisfaction and survival. And yeah. so it, it, it's hard to unpack that, but you're right for them. That gives an actual base to living yeah, in. It's, it's, it's where you start from. Right. And, and once you move down to existentialism with Sartre, um, it's, it, it becomes the way you start to build ontology. Uh, and you, you start to define what it means to be human, uh, and try right. to throw off any, um, any alienating forces or anything that would make you be a object right. uh, to be consumed, uh, which they call rarefication. And, and so you're right. That that's, 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 I think what they're trying to push at. So, and I think for the Christian in, in, in looking at this, you, you, you can't learn about this on, on, on a Facebook reel on a TikTok, or a 20 minute YouTube video. Uh, it's a very rich, dense, philosophy you may you might say it's built on a house of cards as a christian but you can't you can't just diminish it and wave your hand and say oh that's marxism no it's it because it does speak to people that's right who have been catechized in a post-kantian world where you know the transcendent is a very questionable uh place to even see and know and so you begin with yourself and you begin with, well, what are your natural inclinations? And, and also, too, what that does is once it gets down to existentialism, too, Dan, is, is we're always becoming. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very anti-Aristotelian because opposed to essence and energies or essence and accidents, uh, there is no essence. There's only experience, which then creates essence. Right, right, right. So they create who you are. Right. So you, 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 you know, you, you become what you do. 
existence precedes essence. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, and so therefore, I think for a lot of Christians uh, wrestling with, say, the transgender topic, if you don't get your head around that, Mm -hmm. it's not going to make sense to you. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying every person who has sexual dysphoria, gender dysphoria, has read Marcuse and Freud. And what what we're getting at is there's a group of ideas out there that are in the zeitgeist. That's right. uh, That people just sort of accept as a priori, like like love is love. Right. And and, but this is, again, what we're talking about is this is if you are going to say, hey, I'm pro this. What you need to know is this did not just start with someone discovering uh, how to prescribe hormones. <laughs> that is downstream, downstream of some very sophisticated philosophical work. But sure. again, it's built on presuppositions that as the Christian, you have to bring into right. question. Now, that's great, because I think that, you know, I'd say two things there that that catch my interest is the one is the the attractiveness of this comes from and you and i've talked a lot about this the ability of if you limit things to the tupper box you take very seriously the pain in that box that's all there is and the christian right. can sometimes go, well this is painful but the kingdom's over there they can kind of live in that uh, dualism yeah we're dualism is now and not yet sort of thing where if it's all in the tupperware box then then the only thing you ca- the only thing you care about the ultimate value of anything is what's going on there and that gets ultimately reduced down to pain i mean there's no no other way you could say well what if the nation doesn't survive some abstract con what if the nation doesn't it doesn't matter because the nation is an abstract concept if the lids on the box and it's just how do i feel about it becomes the thing and where christians have at least in the past sometimes not paid attention to that the critical theorist is very effective at saying yeah. i'll point out all of these and the real power of the theory comes from their willingness to show every place where pain is caused. And they can always find around it a set of causes, i.e. cultural values that made that person feel that way. Um, so I think I think that's a really important part of this, right? That that the selling point of it is rarely the philosophy you're referring to. The, the selling point of this is their willingness and ability to point out um, the pain that people feel and the difficulty they're going through because they have this language for it, this, this technique, right? Of finding it everywhere. Yep. You know, if you're, if you're hurt, and you're going through pain, I step up around you, draw a circle, and I can find injustice somewhere. I can yep. find someone defining something. I can someone telling you should be this or shouldn't be that. That's it, not hard to find. And therefore, it sort of just keeps repeating itself because you're, you're looking everywhere for these conditions that have made me feel that way. So I think there's a real power, right, ultimately. Absolutely. In it, has, it has a explanation power Oh my! Uh, for people, even people who still probably believe in a transcendent. Um, sure. it, it has an explanation power for people that resonates. Right. Um, and, but it is, it is hard. The, the other thing though, is, is I think it's important to pick, pick at least when we're talking about the Frankfurt school, uh, it, it does have a very pessimistic outlook though. Hmm. Um, because it, it, it almost, there's a sense of, if you are happy in your position, uh, yeah. you're pro- that's how, you know, you're being duped. That's right. If you're satisfied with what you're experiencing and what you're doing, that's how you know. And so therefore, you see this sort of march through the artistic world as well. Right. Um, Just as philosophy should be critical, so should art. Um, It it should unsettle you. It should challenge you. Uh, If you're looking in an art museum and you walk out completely comfortable afterwards, Mm -hmm. well, you've just been into 
art that is there to reinforce the status quo. Right. Uh, if you've walked out of an art exhibit and you're disturbed, good. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Discontent it, it, is virtue. Yeah. Yeah. So in other words, the, the antithesis of critical of Frankfurt school movie is a wonderful life. Right. Right. It's, it's, it, you know, if you watch, it's a wonderful life and you, you know, you feel all warm and you get a lump in your throat. Well, that's how, you know, you're being duped, right? That's, sure. that's a pretty good way of, of, right. pres of prescribing it. If there's a, if there's a, a litmus test for the Frankfurt school, that's it. Yeah. Um, because you don't really understand everything that's going on beneath that that's to right. make that reality possible. Yeah. You don't realize how many people are being stomped on, crushed, oppressed, you name it, right. to make it possible for Jimmy Stewart to do what he's doing. Right. And all the ideas that he's portraying, and this is a term that comes up a lot in critical theory early on yeah. later, is this idea of fetishization, this idea of a, you know, a fetish where you take something very normal and meaningless, a rabbit's foot or something like that, and you turn it into this this magical thing, whatever it is that you've got to now protect and defend. So, you know, yeah. we'd say, well, morality, like let's say self-sacrifice is something that's ultimately good handed down and I'm going to do a half good job with it, but I want to aspire to whatever. They reverse that and say a moral value like self-sacrifice is something that was given to you by society for conspiratorial reasons or oppressive yeah. reasons. Yeah. And yeah. you have fetishized it. <laughs> this is a great word. Fetishized it into this rabbit's foot and which really just says, ultimately, it is not of value. It's ultimately a, a manipulative thing yep. that you're claiming is ultimately good. Yeah. And this is, and this, I, I bring up Adorno's book, um, The Authoritarian Personality, the, that I think a lot of people say is sort of his, other than the dialectic, dialectic of the Enlightenment with, um, I think he and I forget who Horkheimer wrote. Um, but anyway, that, that book, and he makes this, he makes a statement that the true authoritarian is the person who is in compliance with convention your point, you know, you sit down and you, you, the convention of all these wonderful things, you comply, oh, that's good. You now become the worst abuser of people because you concede to the system of oppression, even though you just yeah. think of being nice. And then interestingly enough, who is not, who is not critical of the status quo. So whatever the status quo is doing, yeah. this is to your point, Mark, you have to constantly be critical. This is like Mao's constant revolution point. Every time something happens, it becomes a new status quo. Again, you got to criticize it because again, it's, the, the the soup around you is starting to, to force you to think a certain way. So anything, anything that's used right to define you becomes problematic unless it's the self-expression of your sexual urges and your and your self-defense mechanisms, everything else. Yes. So you you constantly, to your point, have to be critical of everything that happens in the status quo, no matter how it might be make you happy or fuzzy or whatever. It's ultimately the worst kind of tool possible. And, and you know, this this Impression. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pontificate a bit here. I wonder. Uh, the we Gen Xers often joke about the millennials and the Gen Zs that they're always offended. <laughs> um, but I think even looking at comedy or music or movies that we might have grown up with in the eighties, uh, now some of those those topics, some of those ideas are viewed very negatively. Oh yeah. Um, you know, if you go look at you know hairband pop or rock music in the eighties. Uh, it was all about sex, drugs, and rock and roll and objectifying women. Uh, in fact, sometimes the videos, that's what they were for. Um, and then you get to the 90s and you get this very retrospective sort of in, in you know, look at groups like Nirvana and stuff like this, where they're very, they're pessimistic, right? Mm -hmm. they, in some cases, they're, they're more critical of the society. 
Um, and so I think people have been clued in, or at least they've bought into this critical bent uh, of well, what's really going on there? What's that? What's really happening there? And you never really can sit in a, in a space of homostasis where it's okay. I'm good. There's always this constant um, looking for where's the oppression happening, right. um, where is the problem at. Because you begin with the presupposition that all of this is built on a house of cards, right. you know. It's it, and, and so it's your job to look under every rock for where this is being done. Right. Um, and so, therefore, it's a very um, it's a diagnostic tool, and it's sort of a deconstructive tool. The problem is, it's not very constructive. It doesn't give you no. advice on. Well, you know, it, it, in other words, it, it doesn't do the uh, how shall we now live moment right. other than to continue to be disgruntled and critical. And you, there's no millennium here. Right. There's right. no uh, Marxian utopia uh, in this. It, it rather it is a con- you're continuing to look for the problems. And when you move that down to existentialism, how dare you, Dan Spanger, tell me that uh, I cannot live my authentic self when in reality, this is all I've got. Yeah. Right. Because it's material, right? This is it. I mean, once I'm done, that's it. So, you know, you're, you're hindering me from, you know, living my best life now. I think that's more Joel Olstein than the critical school, but, <laughs> but it's, it's, it, you know what I mean? You can see where this becomes very adversarial, very quick, because it's not just to say, well, we have different stand of opinions. It's you're actually in the way of me experiencing a temporary sumen bonum. Right. Right. That, Right. Once I'm once I'm dead, it's over. There's no yeah. afterlife. There's no nothing else. And so, how dare you? Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think the I think sometimes as Christian, you say, "Boy, this just seems so so radical." You just hate Christianity. I think Paul's pretty clear that at the base of any of these sorts of things, in our own sin, there's a hatred of God or you know a, an animosity towards God. But at the same time, that the philosophy that sounds fairly complicated is just in, in my in my thinking is really just a consistent application of that closed Tupperware top once you get that closed off and you're and you're stuck entirely inside this physical and and there may be some spiritual component it depends on how you look at it but but anyway it's closed in environment I don't know how you don't get here and I and I fully I kind of understand why they're so anxious and why they're anxious to make sure that and things like you know protecting people's life and dignity or at least their 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 ability to pursue their own desires I mean a disnification sort of critical theory I I think there's some good values in there right I mean they they want to look protect people they want but but they've ultimate they've turned into ultimate something that is not ultimate yes they've, yes. they've taken something you know, that's temporal and temporary and meant to be enjoyed as a an example of something greater than that right so beauty you would say this is a beautiful sunset because it's partaking in something that's ultimately beautiful well well the sunset ends the ultimate beauty doesn't and so you can say oh good the sunset's gone but now i have a better a better understanding of what is ultimately beautiful in this case that was it. <laughs> yes. The sunset was beauty. And yeah, now this is not, not Plato. It, it ain't no more. Right. I mean, it's totally gone. So you're right. It's not only negative, it's very anxious. It's a, it's a highly anxious way of being. And I think as that's filtered down, this, this way of thing is filtered down into our youth culture to become the framework in which we sort of analyze everything that happens. It doesn't breed in peace. It doesn't breed in hope. It breeds in anxiety very deeply. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because if there's a moment which I'm not experiencing the pleasure of these sorts of things, then that moment's lost and gone. It's not that I'm participating in something eternal. It's that's it. That was the ultimate thing was this is serious FOMO, right? This is like yeah. FOMO on steroids. <laughs> you, yeah. If you don't see it on the vacation, you're done. You'll never see it. It's over. Yeah, it's that's it. Yep. And and it's it's um, but you can see though, again, I'll go back to your point. If you are a group or part of a group where you um, experience or believe you experience oppression, you can see where various critical methods are, um, they, they do, they create a positivity because at least now I have a way to explain what's going on right, and, and why I'm in this position. Uh, and, 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 and in some ways, while the critical Frankfurt school doesn't necessarily provide a full throated reconstruction of society, there are people who say, well, now that I know what's really going on, I can, I can remedy this by addressing everything in that spiral, uh, and, 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 and stopping it. Uh, and and I think the other thing too, we, we need to remember is, uh, particularly in in German uh, theology, uh, you know, there will be uh, Protestant theologians, Catholic theologians who will borrow from Heidegger and yeah, yeah. Uh, and from aspects of the critical school and uh, people of um, and so what they can do is they can kind of cr- Schleiermacher has already uh, kind of quantified Christianity. Right. Not codified, Kant, quantified Christianity. Uh, and so the transcendent is is just kind of what's within me. Uh, and there might be, you know, you could be somebody you do believe there is some sort of God, but yeah. you really believe that God operates as if uh, it is all social structures. Right. It, it's the same like the deist. You can say, well, I believe in God, but I, after that, I'm pretty much a naturalist. Right. You can do this with critical theory. You you can you can create a a Christianity uh, that uses Christian language that has some Christian concerns, um, but and I think you know in some cases liberation theology can do that at times. Uh, and again, there there really there's the same way we've been saying there's critical theories, there's liberation the, theologies, uh, and so you can see that even in the divide, say. Uh, a church like the United Methodist Church is having today over gender and sexuality, you could see where, you know, one side might have breathed in deeply some of these post-World War II philosophical ideas and are trying to uh, resolve that with with their faith, with their Schleiermachian faith. On the other side, uh, I'd say on the conservative side, oftentimes they probably don't even know what's underneath the hood of this. Yeah. Uh, and and where the, and where I sort of encourage students is that if you have to be able to, if you're going to have a biblical worldview, you better be able to contextualize your biblical worldview in a conversation with somebody who either has read all this or has just absorbed it in a way that is aware of how they've constructed the world for themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's right. I think, and, and there's a couple other things or two to that, because I think we're probably, you know, as we were talking before, where this gets it really engaging and where a Christian can easily get caught up in this is, is the automatic hermeneutic of suspicion, right? That you're, you're yes. always supposed to, and, and in one sense, that seems to be Christ. Christ is very suspicious of the Pharisees. And I hear a lot of people justifying some woke thought, basically, it wasn't Jesus upset about not the religious leaders more than anybody else. Well, he was, but he also said your righteousness has to supersede, right, the, the Pharisees. So he wasn't he wasn't downplaying the law or authority. He was he was down he was looking at a certain group, right? But he wasn't calling for now. You don't need the law anymore. But I think where this this hermeneutic suspicion becomes a way of looking at the world is all authority figures impose a moral law, and that's no more than imposing imposing their own social status or their own special status as your authority. So when someone a pastor gets up to preach. He's saying everything he needs to say so he continues to be the pastor behind the pulpit. There's right. there's other value to the words he's saying other than this complex of his own social. And we get very nervous. You know, if he's telling me Andy's authority, I can't separate anymore the truth claim he's making and the fact that he needs to protect his authority to make the truth claim. Yep. So now what it is, is the truth is now really just a tool. And so we become hyper suspicious yep. of anyone in authority that they're just willing their authority somehow to, you know, universalize, if you will, or to transcendentalize, if I can make up that word, yeah. the view that really is just their own personal opinion. And, and this is where I get really worried about Christians. I see it in my own, my own work that I'm in now is that people don't see authority figures and, and say, okay, I'm going to trust you in a sort of Romans 13, you know, first Peter one sort of way. It's more like, all right, I'm going to assume that you're using this to your own advantage. And yeah. that every time you tell me to be good, this is just another, which I get out of World War One trying to unpack how you all got duped into killing each other to the, in the millions and after World yep. War II. So I get why that's an initial way you look at things at that period of time. But to make that the normal way you look at the world, this is where, to me, critical theory becomes such a poison because in the scriptures, uh, respecting authority, even a bad authority is God's call on you. But now the critical theorist says you must be hyper suspicious of everyone in authority because anything they claim is ultimately good is really nothing more than a fetishization right, of their own peculiar view on the world. And so now we're constantly looking for any little, right, hypocrisy, like this, you know. Yeah, fine. yeah. Fine. I want to find the hypocrisy in Hitler, and then that's fine. I'm okay with that. Well, and I the problem is... Do I want to find it in my pastor every time? Like, you know, that's that's the, the your point, this negative opinion that, that yeah. becomes very much part of critical that I think you're right. It's just a normal way to live now. Well, and it also speaks to Christians in this regard. You have to be hyper vigilant in your living because people are looking for, they're already suspicious of you. Yeah, and if you right. give them anything, that's it. They're done. They're out. Check that's me. Right. Um, I knew it. You know, it's, it's, I was waiting that's for awesome. it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I would, I would say that might have a lot to do with some of the deconstruction we're seeing in the church over the last 20 years. Um, oh, yeah, but absolutely. But I, I think it's important for, for our listeners to get at that these ideas, while you and I have sat and read Marcuse and we and Nietzsche and we've read this stuff and we've poured over it, the average person has not. Yeah. The average person has absorbed. I mean, this is where the this is where the the, the critical theory guys are right. They've absorbed it in the culture, right? They've absorbed it in the art, in the music, in the lyric from the song or the, the scene yeah, in the yeah, movie, yeah. Uh, the, uh, you know, just, and then the, the the other thing I think that that creates some, some problem for us um, is um, one of the things they're sort of pushing against is herd mentality. Mm -hmm. But 
what is fascinating is that people will accept today, they will accept something that they read on the internet mm-hmm. as gospel, but choose not to realize that there's someone manipulating an algorithm <laughs> so that they got that. Now I, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you a, a real life example. Oh, good. Concrete. Uh, I, I I I showed uh some videos to my class from the Babylon B. And in between the sets, commercials come on. They were commercials for holsters. Okay. Gun holsters. Okay. Because <laughs> they're assuming we're conservative, so we're toting. That's right. From the from I, I, I showed them two SNL bits, and the commercials were for CBD gummies. Hmm. Right. So I guess they're assuming we're liberal, and <laughs> we are looking for. Interesting. Yeah, it was, and, and it was fascinating. My students picked it up right away. They're like, mm. oh, look at that. They're mm. like, that's targeted marketing. That's that's because of what you just clicked on. They knew it. They yeah. knew it. Uh, but how much does that show up in our news feeds and things like that? So what's very interesting is we have this very critical atmosphere towards authorities. Right. Yet for some reason or other, that same suspicion doesn't happen when we're sitting right. in front of a screen. Right. Maybe we should apply that same hermeneutic to the... Uh... Yeah, to the web authorities that we're using. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I think you're right. It, it, what we need to realize is where this looks like today is it is it's sort of everywhere, and it, it looks at any sort of authority claim as a power play. Yeah, right. As and a I think, right, and that's where I, th- I think the, uh, the 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 power of it really comes down to, and why it seems so. I don't know, off balance, like we'll do it over here and we'll do it over there is because it uses this, this Marxian concept of the oppressed as the, as the normal way that everything inside the Tupperware is built, right? This is the history of it. This is what Marx rereads history is simply just a story of oppression, not a story of enlightenment or a story of moral faithfulness or virtue development or whatever, whatever cultural, whatever it's, everything's read in that same construct. So now you, you're, you are, if you're woke in a sense, and I think that would be a term that critical theorists would agree to, then you're willing to say, of course, at this level, no one can be wrong because that they're the oppressed. So they're they're trying to deal with life at its basic level. But it's the oppressor who's, you know, instrumentalizing. He's yeah. utilizing all of the power structures in his world to communicate and to get you to think something. So your all of your critical effort has to go in that direction because it's an ultimately a story of oppression. So it's funny as a Christian, we say, well, the ultimate value is truth. And if the king says it's true or the pauper says it's true, it's true. If mm-hmm. the king says it's false or the pauper says it's false, it's false. What they're saying is since oppression, since everything in you is defined by this cultural stew around you, then the only thing preying on you in Nietzschean way is power. And therefore, it's true when the oppressed say it to fight from their oppression. It's false in a sense when the authoritarian says it because he's just fetishizing right his own view of the world and his power and authority. So the, the, and this becomes really problematic, obviously, because truth now becomes entirely the result of social interplay of power. If I'm powerless, Whatever I say is right because it's a tool I'm using to fight back against the social power against me. Yeah. And if you're in power, then everything is wrong because no matter what you're saying, you're trying to you're trying to assert even when you don't know it. You think you're doing a good thing. I had a friend once say, "I won't go to a church because I won't have a white man stand up on behind a pulpit and tell me what to think." He's just asserting his power. And I said, "Well, what if he tells you two plus two is four? And she said, "Well, he's saying that because he really means you to trust him that he's the authority figure." Right? So the the proposition right. itself is no longer valuable. The proposition is a tool used by the by the powerful, right? So but even when you speak use your truth, criticism in that direction, it that too is a tool. That right. too is is right. meant to to dupe you, and yeah, yeah, and 
that's where we're at. That's that's what we're dealing. Yeah, that's what we've got to deal with. So yeah, so that, that's um, hard. I, I want to say one other thing too, and I don't want to get off on this, Mark, but I think this. I don't know if we want to go further um, yeah. as we go on, but I or come back to this. But I think there's one other interesting dynamic going on in this way of thinking that's just informed a lot of the way we think, and it's not. It's more political probably um, than it is probably narrow uh, cultural. But the idea for them, I think that since since tyranny is values, since tyranny and 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 uh, uh, abuse and exploitation is not done by an individual, but done by a culture. Um, what ends up happening is the market system itself um, is one of the most exploitative, tyrannical. We normally say that's what we call freedom. We call freedom, free market, free market, you know, go out and work for opportunity. And then, you know, if if people see you're a virtuous hard worker, you'll get a better job. All you're doing is reconfirming the oppressive system. So what ends up happening is capitalism, this is a very key, I think, critical theorist. When they say, what's World War One all about? They say, well, it's socialism fighting. No, no. Capitalism ultimately is the worst tyrant in mm -hmm. the world because it's able to get to you in a way that a, a single dictator can't. Mm -hmm. So even though there's not a single person behind it, everyone becomes an actor in the drama because mm -hmm. we're all reading the same script. And I think what World War II does for many theorists, specifically critical theorists from the Frankfurt School, soon, soon to move to Columbia when Hitler kicks them out, is that they see capitalism as the the run-up now to fascism. And this is this is something I find to be really problematic because many kids, and I've I've spoken, I don't I've spoken to different places across the country to youth groups. And when I say, do you think that capitalism is the gateway drug to fascism? They all most of them would say, yes, that's what I was taught. I say that is not at all true, but that's how you know this has really crept into people's minds because yeah. fascism is a central government that controls things, right? Um, controls society and and media and everything else for its purposes. So it's very tyrannical. Capitalism is decentralized. It's really quite the opposite. Yeah. It's a decentralized view of government. So smaller. How can something that prizes decentralization, small government, be the gateway drug to something that means centralized socialism? This is how. And, and, and the critical theorists are the ones to start talking this way, that capitalism, because it takes the values of freedom, turns them into false absolutes and forces them on people gets people thinking in a way and ready for one person to come in and go, oh, and this is now the truth is I'm the one telling you what these values mean. So if you become a capitalist, you are just two steps away from becoming Hitler. To me, it's always been something I can't get my mind around. But as I've read critical theories, I've seen, oh, I see how they think that way. But it's important to fight back. Now, again, we're not we're not talking. We're well, you know, to, to, to that point, too, Dan, what's interesting is when they get kicked out of Germany and they've got to go somewhere, notice they don't go to the Soviet Union. <laughs> um and, and and part of that part of that has to do with what they realized at that point was that um that uh Soviet Union had become really just state capitalism and I think <laughs> right that's yeah, yeah. right and when I heard that when I heard a, a scholar talk about this they said the mistake we can make with the critical theory is say well if you're not a capitalist you must be a socialist you know if you're not a uh, if you're not a, a Soviet state, you must be fascist. And they don't want to pick. They don't want to pick in the Frankfurt School. And that's that's, that's right. really that's important right. to exactly remember. Right. They're not picking sides. They want to be above the fray and sort of critique the whole thing. Now, for our last five minutes, let's talk a bit about, okay, how do we, you know, how do we now live that's as right. Christians knowing some of this? And it's easy right. just to throw it off and say, crazy talk built on a house of cards. I only believe the Bible. I don't have to pay attention. Right. Uh, but but how do we uh, really start to um, deal with that? 
Yeah, I think you, you raised off, off screen. I think we, we got some clarity, at least for me. I've used some terms for this, but our conversation I think has really helped. And that is one thing you had made the point of was there are things that happen in critical theory, some ideas that come up that actually help us see things that are actually wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, critical theories will theorists will, will point out racial problems, right? In places where there's not clear policy. Well, there's you say, well, there's no racism because there's no redlining anymore. You can get a house anymore. Yeah, then why are there, why are there, you know, sort of unchanging, you know, trends in poverty uh, among mm-hmm. ranks the inner city? The critical theorist goes at that hard directly. Boom, you've got this. The social system around is creating terms and keeping them down. People feel like they can't. So they're able, because what they're looking for, to see problems uh, in ways that typically we don't as Christians, because we've got other other approaches, right? Say Christians from a certain perspective wouldn't see those things. And I think where there's the critiques of society, I, I want to say sometimes that's really helpful. Like, I don't know if I would have seen that, right? I, would, I wouldn't have seen those problems if I wasn't looking with that lens, because my lens would say, well, it's individual responsibility, work harder and get out of the problem, right? I mean, that's how I was brought up, and I've Christianized that in a lot of ways. Um, but it seems like from the critical theorists, they're willing to see causes. I, they're willing to see problems I don't see sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that's a that's a good thing. Am I off base on that? No, I think you do. I think they do. I think sometimes they do. And I think other times, as you were talking, I, I jotted this down. I think one of the problems they have in their diagnostic is that they're very good at or they're they're almost solely devoted for looking at systemic problems, right. uh, but not very good looking at personal yeah, that's true. Right. And and where are are on the other side of the aisle, our libertarian friends are very good at looking at personal <laughs> problems and, and can't see systemic, uh, which I think in some cases explains our political divide today. Interesting. Yeah, uh, but but, true. you know, it's it's but you're right. I do think I do think that they, there are some aspects you can look at it. And again, you, you 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 I think you have to look at it and say, OK, I don't agree with their ontology. I don't agree with their right. uh, epistemology. Uh, you know, I don't agree with their view of materialism and transcendence. So let's start there. Now let me hear what what they're saying and, and realize that they don't have a solution to this. They really can just sort of know a problem that, that yeah. they know something's not right and yeah. there's something wrong here. And sometimes uh, they're right. And then there's other times we need to say, well, I think they're wrong on that. Right. I think you're wrong on this because I think you're overemphasizing systemic problems and you're not asking some of these other questions. And, and and as you said before, no one system has it is is a silver bullet in that way. But I, do I think, think that's great. I think that's great, Mark. Because I think I think what you're saying is we need to be wise, right? Isn't that what you're saying? Yeah, you're saying that, that's let's, scripture. Let's, that's wisdom. Let's listen to them and take what's valuable, and let's be really smart about not accepting things that are going to challenge our. Cosmic imaginary going to challenge our, you know, epistemology, challenge our, yeah, right. Right. And and knowing too, I can't accept certain solutions or even agree that some of these things are oppressions because of social systems, because I still hold on to a transcendent. Right, right. And and, and that's going to create attention. So the very fact that I'm willing to live with the Tupperware lid off and they're not. Uh, means at times I'm going to sound more like Plato, right. um, and 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 there. But but again, they 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 still they live here with us. They're bumping up against, so they can see certain things. Right. And I think the the mistake we can maybe make is to just quickly dismiss it, yeah, and not yeah. take That's the right. time to yeah. to hear it. And I think also too, 
as a Christian, if you are going to be in dialogue with somebody who, who's, who's at least absorbed these ideas, when you're contextualizing your biblical worldview, you need to contextualize it in light of those realities for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just proof texting isn't going to work. You have to be able to understand what is your system. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you don't know what a biblical epistemology is right. or a biblical ontology, and you walk into that conversation, you, you could get your doors blown off. Yeah. Now, I think that's good. Having clarity as to what you're going to dismiss and why, because I think yeah. we do the wholesale one or the other. We tend to, oh, they're really looking at pain and suffering. And we do what you, you've called many times before, onboarding you. You take on the theory to attack a problem and then you onboard more than you planned on. And sooner or later, you find yourself believing things totally at odds with what was once your cosmic imaginary, i.e. a transcendent God and open Tupperware. So I think you have to dismiss, you have to be able to dismiss, and they have to dismiss for the right reasons. You can't just dismiss everything because either you accept it all or sometimes just take the whole thing and go, no, every time I hear a critical theorist talk about racism, I'm going to assume it's just more evil Marxism. Yeah. It might be that the person isn't evil Marxist because they're, you're, they're trying to confirm a cosmic imaginary I can never agree with. Yeah. But maybe the thing they're calling out is actually something I need to hear. And I think we are at the time as, as Christians, we want to do two things. We want to hear other people. We don't want to just say, oh, you're all, you're all wet. We want to hear what they have to say, but then we have to be really, and this is, I think the harder part we can't probably tackle now, but really clear about where I won't compromise. Cause I think yes. for a lot of young people who haven't thought through these things, they think they're not compromising and they cross the line and soon they've given up very key components of their belief system and then deconstruction and going, why did I believe in Jesus to begin with anyway? Now it makes no sense. You got to catch it earlier and be very clear what your convictions are because the critical theorists, as you said, they, they have a lot of problems they can point out, but they promise very, very little. And it's not a gospel at all. There's no redemption in it. There's no restoration in it. There's no ultimate value or meaning in it. So in the moment, it sounds good. Um, especially in a luxurious culture where you can live out your deepest expressions and get away with it because it's okay, it doesn't work and and ultimately leaves you dry. So you you want to be careful that the the resistance to problems that that maybe critical theory gives you it makes promises it can never deliver on. And at some yeah. point you find yourself then you know deconstructing the very things you need to hold on to meaning and goodness and ultimately God who is the greatest good there is. So I think I think yeah that that's the harder part to navigate. It's okay I can hear some of the criticism I'm willing to listen now. Where do I draw lines and make sure? I'll do a Gandalf thing here now. And at that mm. point, you shall not pass. And that, that I will not. And I think our young people are not encouraged from our churches where those lines are, where the hills they will and need to die on, if they're going to hold on to their faith, they're going to hold to meaning, truth, mm. beauty, goodness, all the things that matter mean sometimes you shall not pass this point. And yeah. I think maybe that's maybe a point for another conversation. We it is. And I think we come back to a, a point. Identify some of those. We see throughout church history when Christians allow non-Christian philosophies to arrange the furniture in the room, and right. then they try to force feed Christianity into that, right. uh, whether it's Schleiermacher, whether it's some of the medieval theology, uh, Social gospel movement. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it all, there's always that, that tension and that negotiation that Christians are trying to make. And the mistake I think you can see over and over is when one, you onboard too much of the secular philosophy, or two, you try to force your Christianity into rules or mm -hmm. positions that a non-Christian worldview is opposing, uh, putting upon you, and, yeah. and you're trying to save Christianity that way. Yeah. So, yeah. well, thank you, Dr. Spanger. That's super yeah, helpful. Good, Mark. Thank you. This is a good conversation. We'll come, we'll come back and uh, keep her going. Sounds good.